what's the through line of those very disparate voices and, and films? Uh, a sense in which someone is coming to the edge of their understanding and have once again been reacquainted with their limits and are wondering how any of it makes sense. They are disoriented, and in some ways they are in despair, desperate for somebody to tell them what to do. Help, he says as he walks into his counselor's office. Among the many casualties of the last two years, who of us would disagree that perhaps one of the greatest is our both individual and collective degradation of our mental health? And it has happened unevenly, but it has happened. Have you felt it? I'll bet you have. I have. And though those scenes are from moments having nothing to do with the pandemic and social upheaval and anything else you want to add to the mix, they still capture, I think, what many of us have felt or are feeling or wondering if we will always feel that. What if you've run out of answers? What if you feel like this might be as good as it gets? We've been listening to Elijah for several weeks now, and I've had several reasons for wanting to, obviously because Jesus speaks of him so often. He works his way into the Jesus storyline. But obviously also, um, he has demonstrated a supreme confidence in the Lord, and he has also, with great courage, spoken truth to power. And all of those things fit with our day. It's worthy of hearing. But there's another reason I'm not sure if it's my most important reason for wanting to hear from Elijah. It's because in this text, on this day, you're going to hear just how vulnerable he was. I think to this point, we all kind of think of Elijah like we think of Thor before he's there at the bar. He's got Mjolnir. Nobody can touch him. It's going to be fine. He doesn't even bleed. Today, Elijah bleeds. And we want to think about why. But also about What's next for him? Dave Bachmiller, during our prayer time today, are gathered at prayer at 945. We're open every Sunday. You should really join us over there at 945. He reminded us that the word comfort comes from the Latin word fortis, which means to fortify. That's what comfort is. He is with us and fortifies us for the road ahead. And the question that I want to pose to this moment where we're going to see Elijah so vulnerable today is this. By what means does God offer his comfort? What are the things that we need to account for that we might find it? Now, look, let's set your expectations, manage your expectations. Is anybody going to walk out of here and go, that sermon cured my depression? (laughs) No. We are a sophisticated, complex people. You might need to do more, but you can't do less than what you hear here. How does he comfort us? We're going to consider that in three ways, under three headings. Person, presence, promise. Person, presence, promise. How does he comfort us? Let's find out. We're in 1 Kings chapter 19. I wonder if you might stand. <clears throat> First Kings. Chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough! Now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, Go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may may sit. What is the comfort by which he brings comfort to us in our depression? The fire fell on the altar. Chapter 18. Israel confesses again 
their acknowledgement that the Lord, he is God. The rain has fallen. Elijah, to this point, in the brief account of his life in First and Second Kings, has done everything he can to call Israel to repentance, to call Ahab, its so-called king, to repentance. And last week, you may remember this very odd way of that text ending. Elijah, you know, <clears throat> gets out and runs ahead of Ahab, who's in a chariot, and somehow Elijah outruns him all the way to Jezreel. And that was not just sort of to show his prowess at running or his lung capacity. It was to make a point. It was a lived parable. It was there to say an invitation to Ahab, run behind the word of God. You've run away from it. You've chosen others. Run behind the word of God if you would lead. And we're all left there hanging at the end of chapter 18. What's Ahab going to do? Is he going to take up that invite? Is he going to realize that that is the command that's being laid down by him for him again, despite everything that he's already done to do it otherwise? What's he going to do? Well, we know exactly what he does here in chapter 19. What does he do? He runs to his wife and snitches that Elijah has ended up killing all the kings of Baal. And look, um, in terms of characterization through the entirety of Ahab's life, he's pretty passive. And he looks at his wife as if to say, um, he, uh, would you fix it? And she goes, no problem. She sends a message to Elijah. By this time tomorrow, you're in the ground. You're going to be dead to me. Now, have you ever been threatened? Um, uh, maybe not with harm, maybe not like that. Maybe you have. I don't know. Some of you maybe have been in a knife fight. <laughs> um, some people that are get threatened like that, they kind of brush it off. <laughs> it's the world. Some people bow up. Ready? Yeah. Bring it. And then, and then there are others that are kind of like um, destabilized by it. They are brought low. Probably even in excess of the true nature of the threat. That's just the way things are. And, and here it is, in the moment, Elijah has been threatened. And how does he respond to this hate, to this harm? It says in verse 3, then he was afraid. Now, for you eggheads in the room, the translation there is, says, then he was afraid. Some kind of people debate that he says, actually it means, then he saw. Meaning, he kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. He had great hopes that Ahab might actually repent. Clearly, Ahab has not. Now Jezebel's back on the warpath. And so Elijah's going, oh, now how I see it's going to, now I see how it's going to be. Whether he is terrified by the threat of Jezebel or absolutely exasperated and, and disillusioned that any of his work was going to have bear any fruit, it doesn't matter. He says he fled. He ran for his life to, of all places, to Judah, to the southern kingdom, the, the, the nations of Israel that were now estranged from the northern kingdom. He says, I'm out of here. I'm going I'm to cross the boundary. I'm going to go hang out there. And then he leaves, he leaves his servant there in Beersheba, there in the south part of Judah, and he says, stay, I'm going out. It's kind of kind of reminds you of you know, Gethsemane. Jesus, here, sit here. I'm going to go off and pray. That's what Elijah does. He moves on further on. And it's there that we hear his heart for the first time in ways that we haven't before. There in verse 4, he says, It's enough now, O Lord. 
Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Translation, I am done. There is nothing left in the tank. This appears to be a fool's errand. I'm not sure why you ever dispatched me on it. I think I don't want to live anymore. So take me out. I appear to be of no point or purpose to whatever purpose you had for me. And that should grapple with us. He has shut down. And again, it's always dangerous to apply modern terms to ancient words. It's that big word, anachronism. But I think what we hear in this moment is a textbook case of what you might call depression. I see no point in all of this. He is at the bar going, I have no idea what to do, Thor. And because this is a question about where is the Lord in all of this, this is not just a a depression sort of generic, this is a spiritual depression. This is a crisis of belief in him. Ever felt it? He has just seen the Lord act with power on the altars. He has just seen, as a consequence of his prayer for Israel, rain that had not fallen for three and a half years, finally to fall. How can this one, who has demonstrated so much strength and courage and confidence, now appear utterly destabilized? Um, We quote C.S. Lewis around here a lot. Maybe too much. Ah, sue me. But he was very frank. You know, he's a very confident apologist. You know, we, my first introduction to him in college was reading mere Christianity, right? Or he's making a case for the faith. Some people say it's great. Some people say, nah, eh, I've seen better, whatever. He did it. That was his thing. That was his gig. But he is very honest about saying this. Um, I found that nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist. No doctrine of that faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal as the one that I have just successfully defended in a public debate. For a moment, you see, it seemed to rest on oneself. And as a result, when you go away from the debate, it seems no stronger than that weak pillar. And that is why apologists take our lives in our hands. I think C.S. Lewis would agree with Jesus. There is food to be found in doing the will of God. In whatever domain you do it, you don't have to be an apologist. In whatever you do, whatever Scott does, There are days in which he feels like, yes, there is food to do the will of God. But Scott knows, and you know, in whatever format you are, there is also an occupational hazard with doing the will of God. And Elijah is exhibiting that. And what Lewis shows us in that little quote is not something about God so much as his own weakness, his own human limitations. He's found his limit. And so is Elijah, and so have you, and so do I. And the first part of the comfort, the first part of the protocol that I think we're meant to take here when it comes to our spiritual depression is attending to our person. To who we are in our being. And I I conceive of that from what I find here in Elijah in two ways. Both our physical self and our mental self. Um, Back in the early 20th century, there was a pastor named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And before he was a preacher, he was a physician. He left that physician 
vocation behind to become a preacher. But obviously, having been trained in the way that he did, he brought all that stuff with him into the life and the care of souls. And he wrote a book that you can find online. It's called Spiritual Depression. What a title! And he speaks very candidly in the very first chapter about what are the main causes of spiritual depression. You know what the first one he notices? Names? Your temperament. We all have a makeup. I know you can define temperament in some ways. I suppose people could debate about whether there is such a thing. Fine. Have the debate. Temperament. Some of us, look, we are sanguine, put on a happy face. We are, you know, um, grace guys are going to clear up, whatever. We're like that. And then the rest of us are like, like our patron saint is some fusion of Eeyore and Grumpy. <laughs> Ask me which I am. Temperament's thing. And you have to account for that. And he does. So why don't you? Secondly, he's a preacher. He believes in the spirit world. I do too. Maybe you do too. He says, the accuser is about in the work of depression. If you don't believe that he would have an interest in bringing you absolutely low, you don't understand his MO. To whisper in your ear, you are nothing, you are worthless, you are the worst thing you've ever done. But the third thing he says the cause of our spiritual depression is your body, your physicality, your physiological makeup. And if you don't think about that, come on. This thing is a gift, and it's complex, and it's a wonder. And anything that is a wonder and complex can be a mess. Just ask your mechanic. There's a billion things that can go wrong. And that's why... Dave Martin Lloyd-Jones says early in that book, he says, you cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical, for we are body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and the best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than in any other time, and there are great illustrations of this in the scriptures. It's not all a head game. It's not all about having the right thoughts. It's part of it. It's not all of it. And if you turn it into that, it's like you've just tied both hands behind your body. What? What does Elijah do when he's beside himself? He takes a nap under a broom tree. And what does the Lord do for him in the middle of that? He brings him food and drink. And more than once. There is a physicality that you have to account for. And if you don't, you've already shot yourself in the foot. There's a physicality to account for. There's a second part of it that you see in here too. It, it, there is a mental thing too, right? There, there is something going on here. Now, wait, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> Does this mean, given what happened to Elijah, that we also sort of, sort of sit in our living room and wait for God to order up DoorDash? <laughs> um, try, let me know. I mean, maybe that'll work. I mean, who knows? God can do anything. Ding dong. <clears throat> do I have to tip? It does mean this, though. You should account for your bodies. And, and not to is to sort of say, you don't know what you're talking about. There is a physical part. There's also a mental part. And, and the way I get that is, what is, Elijah has the food, he has the drink, and, and now he's going to go on a journey, and he says, hey man, you're going to go to Horeb. Now, what's Horeb? Pull back and rewind in the tape back to Exodus. What is Horeb? That's where Moses goes. What happens at Horeb with Moses? Oh, he sees this burning bush that's not consumed. Wow, I should write about that. Same place where he asks the Lord to show him his glory, and God says, ha, huh, you know, thanks. I'll show you my goodness. If I show you my glory, it'll kill you. 
okay, I'll take goodness. Goodness is fine. And he passes by. And, and then God asks Elijah a question. Elijah, um, why are you here? <laughs> do, you, do you think the Lord really didn't know? Gosh, where did he go? I can't see him. The GPS thing broke. <clears throat> In the same way, like, Adam, where are you? You think God really didn't know? Why does God ask Elijah, why are you here, Elijah? Is it so that God can learn something? No, it's so that Elijah can learn something. And what does Elijah do? He rattles off the reasons why he is here and in his funk. I've done everything I know to do. Nobody's listening. Not only are they not listening, they're tearing it all down. They're trying to take everybody out. And now the target is on my back. What, What is Elijah doing in that moment? He's defining his despair. It is not everything, but it is these things. And friends, let's call it an implicit case that when you are in your funk, one helpful way to face it is to ask yourself, why am I in the funk? And you know who else did that? You've already read it this morning. Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why is there turmoil within me? The psalmist is asking himself that question. He has to ask himself that question. Otherwise, he will be swallowed up by everything that is not the question. And that's exactly what Elijah is doing in that moment. Attending to your person is attending to your body, but it is also letting your thoughts think certain thoughts to figure out what is there. It's not everything, but it is some things. You attend to your person. And you know what? Um, Most people, when facing their depression, however they might want to define it, will kind of stop there. I care for my body. I care for my thoughts. And everything will be fine. Obviously, there's benefit to it. But that's not where we have to stop. God doesn't stop there, and neither does Elijah. So we've got to talk about the second thing, the second part of the protocol. Um, The question that God has asked Elijah is ringing in his ear, and Elijah is breaking down, he's he's isolating, he's he's giving his despair certain terms just to to make some sort of heads or tails of all of it, and then then something strange unfolds, the strangest part of the text, right? Go out to the edge of the cave, he is told, and he does. And, And what happens? Just like the Lord passing by in Exodus 33 with Moses, the Lord passes by, and what happens? Um, There's first wind, but God's not in the wind. And then there's a quake, and God's not in the quake. And then there's fire, so there's earth, wind, and fire. Catchy. (laughs) But in none of that does God align himself saying, listen to that, that's it. Instead, it says, but then to Elijah came a low whisper. A low whisper. What, what does that mean? When it comes to our struggle of whatever it might be, part of what we need to know is that God is real and that he's holy. That's, that's why Elijah puts a cloak on his face when the Lord passes by because he, he, he went to Hebrew school he, he knew what God told Moses in Exodus 33. If you see my glory, you're, you're going to die. Okay, fine. I'm good. This is fine. This is great. I'll do this. 
he is grappling with the holiness of God, grappling with the idea that there was something more real, more substantial, and more beautiful than the worst thing that you're preoccupied by. Somehow we have to feast on that. Scott Sauls just wrote a book, another one, and in it he, he quotes something from Annie Dillard that I just thought was um, awesome. Does anyone have the foggiest idea, she asks, what sort of power we so blithely invoke that is the Lord on a worship service? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Friends, when you walk in this room, or whenever you get on your knees, or whenever you pull out the Bible, my temptation is your temptation to reduce the Lord's comfort to something like a warm beverage and a blanket. Have you ever had somebody look you in the eye and tell you the one thing that you didn't want to hear but that you needed to hear and to say it fiercely without them batting an eye? That's love. And the Lord does that as much as trying to calm you and give you a balm. He's holy. But why is the contrast being made between all of these dramatic demonstrations of power and ferocity and vividness and the low whisper? Why? When are you able, in other experiences, to hear a low tone that's almost inaudible to you? When are you able to hear it? When you are quiet, when you are undistracted, because it is only in that condition that you can receive anything that is barely audible. Are you quiet? Would you say that inwardly, you are at rest? Or are you, like me, brain-addled, smartphone-addicted, afflicted by noise, and somehow loving it, and realizing that at some point this depression is self-inflicted? Are you, like the psalmist, O oh Lord, my eyes are not lifted up, my, my heart is not raised too high, I do not occupy things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have quieted my soul like a child at its mother's breast, like my soul within me. How is it that we ever grapple with the goodness, the reality, the holiness of God? How is it that the depression might lift with somehow a confirmation of his presence? Thomas Merton, I've shared this with you before, was a monk. He said this, if we strive to be happy by filling the silence of life with sound, productive by turning all life's leisure into work, and real by turning all our being into doing, we will only succeed in producing a hell on earth. If we have no silence, God is not heard in our music. If we have no rest, God does not bless our work. If we twist our lives out of shape in order to fill every corner of them with action and experience, God will seem silently to withdraw from our hearts and leave us empty. 
if the way out of our depression is a confirmation of his presence, then perhaps part of it to be receptive to that presence is to shut up. You and I have to learn to wrestle with our inner clamor, our addiction to input and noise so that God might confirm that. There's one last thing I think we learned from this. One last part of the protocol. And as with every text, the weirdest part, not even that part, that part was weird, this part, the weirdest. Um, <clears throat> two times, God has asked Elijah, why, why are you here, man? And both times, Elijah rattles off all of his reasons. And the way that God responds is to confirm this to Elijah. God is in some way saying, you know what, Elijah? You're absolutely right. Spot on. You are not making this up. You're not exaggerating. You're not being hysterical. All of that is true. And the reason we think that God is agreeing with Elijah in that moment is because he makes him a promise. Elijah, I want you to go out and anoint two kings. They're going to lead. And I want you to anoint one successor. His name is Elisha. That's coming next week. Stick around. Same bat channel. All of that. And that's kind of weird. You're going to anoint two kings. You're going to anoint a successor. But I want you to focus really on what happened in the last verse. What does he say in the last verse? He says this. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, uh, fun fact. God's playing trivial pursuit here. Why, why are you bringing that up? Remember Elijah's lament? I've done everything I know to do, and nobody's listening, and this is all a waste of time. I have, I have worked in vain. And the Lord is saying to him, your labor is not in vain. My will will prevail. Yep. Scads and scads are peeling off. They're done with me. They're done with you. Trust me, some will stick. I'm promising you that. What God is doing in that moment to lift him and provide a paradigm for us all about lifting our depression is that God not only has to have us attend to our person, not only does he have to confirm his presence, but he also has to reassure us of his promise. And in that moment, what Elijah needed to hear was the promise of God that his labor was not in vain. Boy, here would be a wonderful question I wish I could ask all of you right now. What is one thing that you would, you would do almost anything to be reassured of right now? What is the one thing that you feel like hangs in the balance that is on the edge or on the precipice that you just I wish you could have certainty on but you can't have it what is that one thing that you wish you could be reassured of I bet you would all have an answer it probably is at your fingertips maybe it's about your family maybe it's about your future maybe it's about your health maybe it's about sense of identity I don't know you could rattle it off what is that one thing that the Lord would want to reassure us of that does not change when everything else changes. A few weeks ago, I shared with you an article by a, a psychologist who was actually writing an essay from within an institution to which he had been committed. His name is James Mumford, and he wrote an article called um, Psychotherapy Beyond Good and Evil. Therapy good, Beyond Good and Evil. And it's in our recent stock this week, and you should read it if you have a chance. But he tells a story in that article 
about a, an Australian man who, when he was 17, worked as an orderly in a mental institution. And most of the people in that room who were in that institution had been there for decades, most of whom nobody ever visited anymore. They were secluded and forgotten, and they couldn't live in society, so they lived there. And this young Australian boy who was an orderly, they had come to believe what society had come to believe about these people. They treated them as if they were something less. When, when they would soil themselves, the orderlies would clean them at a mop's distance. They had come to, the orderlies, internalize how these people, how these patients had begun to think about themselves. But this 17-year-old boy who 40 years later remembered something, at some point, a Catholic nun shows up to offer help and treatment to these patients. And what this man remembers from her experience, he wrote down in that article, he said this, everything in her demeanor towards them, the way she spoke to them, her facial expressions, the inflections of her body, revealed that even such patients were the equals of those who wanted to help them. The love of the saint was able to reveal the full humanity of those whose affliction had made their humanity invisible. The world had sequestered them, silenced them, put up a wall between them to lead them to conclude that they were subhuman. And this saint, this nun, walks in there and says, You belong. You belong to humanity. No matter how much your disease has devastated you, no matter the way, no matter how way the society has sequestered you, you belong. You belong to humanity. Friends, let me tell you the one thing that you and I need to be reassured of if you've ever walked with Jesus, and it's this. You belong to God at the cost of his own son. And you belong to him having nothing to do with what you have done or have not done. You belong to him because what he has done for you in Jesus. That's the gospel. And last week we celebrated Pentecost because we can only talk about the Spirit once a year. No. <laughs> what is the Holy Spirit doing all the time? What Paul says he's doing in Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Not because I'm special, not because I have any kind of distinctive or pedigree behind me, but because of what he did. And all I would say to you, my friends, is that I wish your circumstances would change too if they are oppressive or afflicted. But what we are most fortified by is not our optimism. We are fortified by the belief a promise that we are reassured of that we belong to him because of Jesus. What's the takeaway? I end with an idea that David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts in that book on depression. There is one thing that you and I struggle with, among other things, and it is this. We listen to ourselves a lot more than we talk to ourselves. Talk to ourselves? What? Why did you just do that? Meaning, you and I listen to your mind, its clamor, more than, as he puts it, taking your heart in hand and speaking to it and preaching to it. 
Because that's what the psalmist does in Psalm 42. Why are my downcast, O my soul? Why is there inner turmoil within me? There's the question, and then here's his answer. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Here's the discipline and the skill that we all have to learn to cultivate if we're going to walk in Jesus, is that at times, this thing that is hard and sometimes feels silly is necessary. Is to be able to take our heart in our hand and say, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Hope in God. That's the takeaway. We account for our person. We beg for his presence. We ask him to reconfirm his promise through his spirit by what he did in his son. And somehow we will be lifted. Maybe it's not everything, but it's not without these things.